Amen. Luke chapter number five tonight. Luke chapter number five. Glad to have Miss Andrea back and Leanna's in the nursery and uh, doing well. Exciting to be able to see even in a month's time uh, this little one growing and uh, see the long-awaited blessing of God's answered prayer. It's a wonderful, wonderful blessing. Uh, Luke chapter number five. We had a good, it's been a good day today. Started out at seven o'clock this morning speaking to the Rockdale County Sheriff's Department. And I've uh, really appreciated over the last couple of years the opportunity to speak there. And Sheriff Levitt and, and Chief Holmes have, have been very gracious. And um, uh, sometimes I'll speak a couple times a month and sometimes it's every other month. But I always enjoy the time. They give me liberty and it's been a real blessing to be able to uh, pray for them and get to know them. And so just uh, uh, never take for granted when God gives opportunity to give the gospel. And there's always, always power that we can trust, power that is in the gospel. That's enough power that could save any soul. I know for many years ago, we started in a prayer meeting that God just laid it upon Angie Easterwood's heart to pray for Nancy Pelosi. And sometimes people would think, eh, why would you do that? Because Christ died for her. She has a soul. And it requires the power of the gospel to work in a person like that. In fact, I don't think it would necessarily take as much for somebody like that who is empty. And there's a lot of empty people who live in that realm, but they've also, they're living in a stronghold. And the power of the gospel is the answer. Luke chapter number five. Let's go ahead and stand, please, if you're able to do so. Luke chapter number five. We'll begin our reading in verse number one. It says, And it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him, that is Jesus, to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two ships standing by the lake. But the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. Now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draft. And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. And when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes and their net break. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come to and help them. And they came and filled both the ships so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished and all that were with him at the draft of the fishes which they had taken. And so was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. 
We're going to continue this journey and looking at the seasons, different seasons. We go through different seasons. We're entering into a different weather season. It's a little bit cooler. It feels nice. It's the season known as football. It's football season. And, and uh, we all go through certain seasons, whether it's moral failure, personal failure, a failure in marriage or a parenting failure, many times every one of us will experience failure. And the Bible has much to say about the season of failure. I'd like for us to look at this subject tonight, the season of failure from this passage of Luke chapter number 5. Thank you. Please be seated. Simon Peter learned much in his season of failure. He had fished all night along with his partners. They were professional fishermen. This was not a hobby. This was their livelihood. They'd been trained to fish. They'd been successful in the past. But here, this night, this day, this morning, Luke chapter 5, they failed. They failed miserable, miserably. They failed totally. In verse number 5, Peter said, We've toiled all the night. We've taken nothing. We've caught nothing. You know, one of the devil's biggest lies to the people of God that, is that if you fail... You're a failure. If you fail, God is gone from you. If you fail, it's all over. But the Bible teaches anything, if it teaches anything at all, it teaches us that failure does not need to be final. And that a person who does fail is not a failure unless he quits. You're never a failure until you give up. And Simon Peter and his partners, they wanted to give up, but Jesus wouldn't let them. You know, the good news is, is, is that if you know the Lord, you belong to the Lord, the Lord won't let you give up so easily either. Now, all through history and all through the Bible, we find those who fell. And I had a list of those in history and in modern times who were considered failures, but they didn't give up. And they made it. But I'm not going to focus on that. I want to just mention a few from the Bible. Because sometimes when we fail, we feel like we're the only ones who've ever blown it. Nobody else has blown it as bad as we have. But as I look in the Bible, the very first people to ever come into this world in a perfect environment, who had a perfect parent, and they were perfect people initially, they failed. Adam and Eve, they failed. And when they sinned against God in the garden, they failed. But one of the things that I want you to get is that failing does not equal being a failure. Just because we fail, that does not identify you as a failure unless you quit. And the truth was for Adam and Eve, even though they failed when they sinned, it wasn't over for them. It wasn't their final chapter because God came back to them and had a plan for redemption and restoration. Abraham. Abraham failed when he went down into Egypt and he said about his wife fearing for what may happen to him. He said, this is my sister. There's partial truth to that, but he lied. He lied out of fear. 
And because of that, he had failed. But he wasn't a failure because he didn't give up. He went on to believe God. He went on to believe God so much that he put his only son whom he loved on the altar of sacrifice, the only promised son that is, and put him on the altar of sacrifice and gave him to the Lord. Moses, Moses failed. When he murdered that Egyptian trying to help out God. You know, when we try to help God out, we tend to make it worse. When we try to hurry God up, we tend to delay things. And Moses tried to help God and hurry God and he buried this Egyptian in the sand. He failed, but he wasn't a failure. Forty years later, God brought him back to Egypt to be a deliverer for the people of God. Remember Jonah? Jonah too failed when he went away from the presence of God. He went down to Tarsus. He got on a ship and he went the opposite direction than the Lord had commanded. You know, he could have looked at the scenario and said, here's a ship. Here's one that's available. Must be God's will. No, it mustn't. And just because it's there doesn't mean that that's the opportunity. The devil can open opportunities for you. And Jonah, he spent three nights in a very special hotel called the Well Hotel. And there, the Bible says the word of the Lord came unto him a second time. Why? Because God didn't recognize him to be a failure just because he failed. A failure is one who just gives up. And Jonah, he didn't give up. He responded the second time to the word of God. And he went and preached in Nineveh. And from the the king on the throne to the beggar in the street, he preached repentance. And we find one of the greatest revivals in the history of man took place. Oh, Mark in the New Testament, he failed. He failed when he turned back from the missionary journey with Paul and Silas. Could you imagine getting an opportunity to travel with Paul? Well, not everybody gets to do that. And you don't get too many opportunities. You blow that. You may never get another one. And Mark blew it. He failed. But because John Mark came back to the Lord and responded properly, God used him to write the gospel of Mark. What I'm saying and what the Bible is saying is that just because a person fails does not mean that they are failures. Edmund Cook wrote on what is failure. He said it this way in this little poem, it is a spur within the one who receives it right to make the spirit in him go out and fight. So if you've never failed, it's an easy guess that you'll never be a big success. See, God uses failure. You know, there's a silver lining in failure. You know what failure does? What failure teaches? What God wants you to get? What Peter got through failure? Here's what failure, in a nutshell, teaches us. You blew it. God didn't. Get back to God. Don't buy into the notion that mistakes can somehow be avoided on the road of discipleship or success. They can't be. Someone described it as failing forward. It's the ability to get back up after you've been knocked down, learn from your mistake, and move forward in a better direction. See, failure is not a one-time event. 
It's how you deal with life along the way. Until you breathe your last breath, you're still in the process. And there is still time to turn things around for the better if we fail. When we fail, it's because we stopped depending upon the Lord. Generally speaking, there are two kinds of learning. There's the learning from experience, which is gained from your own mistakes and wisdom, which is uh, uh, from your own mistakes. And then there is learning from wisdom, which is learned from the mistakes of others. So you can learn from your own mistakes. You can learn from the mistakes of others. Dr. Charles Keynes once said, when I went with him to Mongolia a few years back, he says, I'm not afraid of being a failure. I'm afraid of succeeding at something that God has not called me to. Steve Farrar, who went home to be with the Lord just a year or so ago, wrote the book entitled Point Man. He said everyone fails, but the true failure is the one who doesn't learn from his setbacks. That's why a teachable spirit is so important. You know, the world throws broken things away. Well, you should at least. Some people don't. They hoard them. But while the world has the mentality of throwing broken things away, God doesn't use people until they are broken. God specializes in using broken things and broken people. And that's what Peter learned at the Sea of Galilee on this occasion. Jesus, as we heard Brother Comfort even talk about Sunday, is always concerned about the individual. Here he is, he steps into a boat to preach because the crowd was so great. But he's not just preaching to the crowd and concerned about every individual. He's also concerned about this Peter. He's concerned about his helpers. I'm thankful that the Lord can deal with the crowd, but he's also concerned with every individual. And his purpose is to transform us. It's to send us with the message of forgiveness that others too can come to Jesus. And then the Bible says in verse 1, they're at Gennesaret. Gennesaret is just one of the other terms that is used for the Sea of Galilee. It's also known as the Sea of Tiberias. It's the, it's the, the west side of the lake. And, and there is many little villages around this lake, nine or so villages. And they said that they had about as many people around the Sea of Galilee that perhaps the population of Jerusalem would have contained at that time. And here Jesus comes and he's trying to help Peter with something in the fishing realm to help him see something that he's going to face in the spiritual realm. And that is, there's a season of failure. But no failure is final if you come to the Lord for a new start. Here, Jesus, he comes on the scene and he gets into a boat. He gets into Peter's boat. That boat had been the object of failure the night before. But something different is about to happen. It's always different when Jesus gets into the scene of our life. It's always different when Jesus gets into the mess of our life. And I want you to see three things about going through this season of failure. How do you come out of the failure? What happens to turn it around and go from failing to having a new start? Well, I think there are three things that we can see here. 
And I hope this will be come across as simple as I have tried to put it down. Number one, if we're going to survive successfully this season of failure, number one, awake to the presence of the Lord. Awake to the presence of the Lord. See, many times in the midst of failure, when we have failed and we're going through a season of failure, we listen to what the devil says and that is that God's nowhere near. We're so far from God, there's no hope, there's no use. Remember here, they fished all night. They caught nothing. And then Jesus comes. In the season of failure, we must awake to the reality of God's presence in our life. In failure, we've often forgotten the presence of the Lord. The very answer in your failure, you need to rise up. You need to see Jesus. You need to see Jesus and magnify Jesus and allow His presence to be reality in your life. The reason is because He's not forgotten you. You may have forgotten Jesus in a season of failure. He's not forgotten you. He knows you. He knows where you are. And it was after Peter had failed that Jesus came aboard the ship. And that was the greatest thing that could have ever happened to Peter. I want to tell you, you must awake to his presence. Are you aware of the reality of God within your life? Oh, how can we awake to his presence? Well, if you're not saved, you need to trust him to be your savior. You must put your faith and trust dependence upon Christ as saved. But once we're saved, then it requires surrender to the master. Peter says in verse number five, he says, Master, we have toiled all the night. He says, Master. He's responding in surrender and submission to the Lord. You'd fished all night. You caught nothing. Would you be getting ready to go out fishing again? You may think, well, it's not worth it. I'd rather go, and go home and do something else. But instead, they're washing their nets. They're mending their nets because they're going back at it. You see, Jesus not only came aboard Simon Peter's vessel, but he became the vessel's captain. Jesus got into Peter's boat. Jesus is telling Peter what to do. Peter turned his boat over to Christ. Jesus is not only a land lord, he becomes a sea lord. He wants to be lord of all because he is Lord. And Peter yielded his ship to Jesus. And Jesus used his ship as a pulpit to preach life-giving truth. I want to tell you tonight, Jesus can use your scene, your vessel, which has experienced failure. Jesus can use your life, which has been experiencing perhaps failure. Jesus can be lifted up within your midst and enthroned as the Lord in the middle of your failure. And Jesus can turn your failure into victory. He can turn your, your, your time of despondency into success. So in your failure, recognize his presence. Is Jesus reality in your life? I'm not asking if he's real. We know he's real. But is he a reality to you? I want to tell you, there's a difference between Jesus 
being transcendent and being present or omnipresent. Omnipresence means that God is everywhere. But his transcendence means that he's not confined to time and space like we are. Transcend simply means to go above, to rise above, to be above. In other words, he's everywhere equally at the same time. He's omnipresent, but he's also transcendent. And that means that there's nothing that's over you. There's nothing that is capturing you. There's nothing that's holding you down. But what God is over that. And we need to awake to the reality of his presence. You know what transcendence means? It means that God is always nearer than you may imagine him to be. Here's what Tozer said about it. God is nearer than your thoughts are to you. God is nearer to you than even your thoughts within your mind. That's how near he is. We just need to awake to him. God is nearer to you, Tozer said, than your breath is to you. See, your very soul, Tozer said, is not as near to you as God is. So awake. Awake to his presence. Because he's God. He's an uncreated being. He's far above so that nothing is greater than he is, but he's so very near. Jesus is not only the Lord of our success, he's the Lord of our failure. He died for our sins. Why would he stay far away from our failure? He conquered sin, death, and hell. What could he not do with your failure and mine? Jesus took control of that ship. He wants to take control of yours as well. Have you given your life to Christ? Have you surrendered to Him? Have you given your family to Christ? You say, I've done it before. What about tonight? You need to do it again. Why? Because your family's acting independent of God. Have you given your problem to Christ? You say, Well, I have before. Well, what about tonight? You say, Why should I tonight? Because you're acting as if the problem is yours to handle. There's one who's greater than you. His name is God. Have you given your difficulty to Christ? Awake to his presence. He wants to not only be your savior from sin and hell. He wants to be your deliverer. He wants to be enthroned as Lord in your life. So what did Peter do? Peter gave him what he had. And you know what Jesus did? He took it. Jesus used it. Jesus blessed it. And it became a place from which Jesus taught the truth and lives were changed. See, Jesus will take that which you give him. And anything you give to Christ, he receives. And whatever he receives, he blesses. And whatever he blesses, he will use. So give him your failure, give him your life, give him your vessel, give him your boat. He'll take that boat, he'll take that vessel and Jesus Christ will bless it. He will use it in a mighty way to accomplish his purpose for his glory and your good. Number two tonight. Like Peter, after we awaken to the presence, it's Jesus who has stepped into our life. Number two, cooperate. Cooperate with Christ's plan. Do you know that Jesus has a plan for your life? He had a plan for Peter's. And do you know that his plan was so trivial? It was about fishing. 
It, it, it was about where to fish, how to fish. Jesus had a plan. You know, Jesus has a plan for your life. You say, some of these things are not a big deal. If God's alive, and if you're alive, it's a big deal. What do we need to do? The same thing Peter did. Cooperate. Cooperate with Christ's plan. Verse number five, Simon answering said, Master, we've toiled all the night. We've taken nothing. Did you know that anything that begins with Anything that begins with we, it's usually going to end up with nothing. Anything I try in my energy, my flesh, apart from Jesus being enthroned as Lord, anything I do apart from him will end in nothing. My ministry endeavor, in my own strength and power, oh, but it looks good, it's clean, it's beautiful. Well, time will tell. But ultimately, anything that you do without full dependence upon Christ, not in a certain part of it, but in the whole gamut of it, until you get right with God and repent, it's nothing. It's, it's, it's a zebra with the edges erased. It's less than nothing. So he's saying cooperate with God's plan. So often I hear of man's plan. Up here on the platform Sunday, Brother Comfort was telling me about a certain preacher who had ambitions of being the greatest. That's his plan. It's not God's plan. And Brother Comfort would always say, beware of a man who has ambitions for himself. What's wrong with just serving Jesus? Why does it have to have a title to go with it? Why does it have to have perks? I thought heaven was a pretty good perk. I thought the Holy Spirit was a pretty good benefit. I thought the power of God was sufficient. See, Peter had his plan. He said, I'll do it my way. I'll work it out. You know, I've worked this profession. Jesus, I don't know if you've seen my resume. I don't know if you, you've been around, but, but I, I, I'm pretty good at fishing. I know what to do. And I'm telling you, Jesus, we've toiled all the night and it's not work. I, oh, it's, it's not the national alert system this time. Um, hey, when he calls, though, that's, that's very important. Um, there is... See, now i got to get ramped back up here. If it was anybody else, I'd just gloss over it, but not with Brother Cherry. I'm not going to gloss over it. Would I? The only other better one it could have happened to was Dr. Childs. And so, uh, it was, <laughs> I've told you my strategy. If my phone ever goes off in church, I'm taking it and I'm sliding it as hard as I can underneath the pew. And where it ends, nobody will know, but it will just ring all the way going back and then we'll point to the person who picks it up. Or the person who doesn't pick it up and um, probably land under Miss Sherry Jones's seat there and everybody will be staring. So that's my, that's my plan. That's what I do. All right. So um, Peter, Peter, that's where we were. Peter said, I'm going to work it out. I'm going to do, I've, I've told all the night. I have fished. I know what I'm doing. And Jesus said, 
Verse number five, notice, or verse number four, he says, launch out into the deep. Let down your nets for a draft. Here was his plan. Peter thought about it. He tried. It's, 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 it's been our custom. It's been our part of our training and our expertise. We don't go back to the deep. Not this time of the day. We, we, we just don't do this. Frank Sinatra made the song famous, I did it my way. And it's okay to have it your way if it's a hamburger. But when it comes to a plan for your life, you better let God have his way. Because you're going to end up with nothing if you have it your way. And so Peter, he thought about it, but he accepted and cooperated with God's plan. How did he cooperate with God's plan? He cooperated with the Lord's plan without argument. He started to argue but then he thought about it and he said, Lord, we've tried, we failed. Nevertheless, I'll do whatever you tell me to do. And many times we must accept his plan without argument. He also cooperated with the Lord's plan without hesitation. He said, okay, Lord, because you tell us to go out into the deep, into the lake and, and let down our net, we're going to do it without hesitation. Let me ask you a question. You obey Jesus without hesitation? Or does he have to coerce you? Does he have to convince you? You know, is it one of the things where you have to just pray about something he's made very plain, such as whatever the Bible says? I just think the Bible saves us from a lot of praying. The Bible says it. You don't pray about it. You just do it. Peter, he did it without argument, without hesitation. He did it without question. He didn't say, Lord, it doesn't make any sense. We've already fished all night. But because you say so, we'll do it. Do you need any other reason to tithe other than God says, do it? Do you need any other reason to pray? Do you need any other reason to be a witness? Do you need any other reason to study the Word of God? Do you need any other reason to be ethical and to, honest, and to be honest other than the fact that God says so? Because He said so. It doesn't have to make sense. Peter said, I'm going to let down my net because you say so at your word. Proverbs 16, 3, commit thy works unto the Lord. Thy thoughts will be established. Sometimes we will never understand it. It'll never make sense until we trust and obey. Commit thy works unto the Lord and thy thoughts will be established. Right. Hebrews 11 and verse number 7. The Bible says of Noah, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Do you think any of that which, which Noah did made sense? Not to anyone around him, and maybe not even to Noah at times. But what did make sense was, God said so. Hebrews 11 and verse 8, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he, which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, went out not knowing whither he went. Does it make any sense to the human mind when God says, If you tithe, I'll open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing upon you so great that you can't receive it, and I'll rebuke the devourer, and for your sake, and I'll protect you from Satan. Humanly, 
It may not make sense. Does it make sense that you can live better on 90% of your income than you can on 100%? Doesn't really make sense to the world. The world says hoard it. God says give it. Give and it shall be given unto you. See, the point is, it doesn't matter if it makes sense or not. What matters is, what does he say about it? What does he say? And so cooperate with his presence. Cooperate with his plan. Number three. If we're going through a season of failure, what should we do? Awake to the presence of God. Cooperate with his plan. But number three, respond properly to God's blessing. Respond properly to the blessings of God. Sometimes when we're going through failure, we can't see blessing. Some may not have great health. But if you have some health, you can be thankful if you don't have any health, but you have eternal life, you have an eternity to be thankful. Look at the blessings. Peter's response is both unexpected and remarkable. So what happens? Peter says, I'll let down the net, verse number 5. And verse number six, when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes and their net break and they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, what? The blessing of God. He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished. And all that were with him at the draft of the fishes which they had taken. And so respond. Respond proper, properly. Most fishermen, even godly ones, would have likely taken credit for such a miraculous catch. Spiritual fishermen would have glorified God for the bountiful grace. But what did Peter do? He said he confessed how sinful he was. Isn't that what the Bible teaches? That the goodness of God ought to lead us to repentance? Immediately Peter realizes that he is in the presence of more than just mere man. He's in the presence of Almighty God. Jesus was not simply a preacher with the power to heal. He was the Lord of the sea and the fish of every rim of the entire universe. And Peter recognized this, that he was unworthy, that he cannot ride in the same boat with Jesus in the current condition he was in. In the face of Jesus' grace and power, all Peter could do is hit the deck and beg Jesus to leave. Envision this account while this miracle is occurring. Peter lets the net go. His co-workers are hauling in the greatest catch that they've ever seen. Amazed at the success, the ships are about to sink because of how heavy they are from this great blessing of God. This is more than mercy drops of blessing. And Peter then is in awe of Jesus and he wants to own up to his own sinful condition. I want to say that that's how we ought to respond how did Peter respond in this sense of awe and repentance? Well, he called others to take part in verse number seven. He, he, he beckoned his partners to come. How people respond to success is one indication of their true character. Peter didn't say, hey, look at me. He said, come over and see what God is up to. 
Instead of claiming the valuable catch for himself, Peter and Andrew called their partners to share it. See, the truth is, we're not reservoirs, but we're channels of blessing to share with others how good God is and how gracious he's been to us. He called others to take part. Number two, verse number eight, when he saw it, he fell down on Jesus' knees. He worshiped the Lord. When, when, when God is good to us, and he's always good to us, call others to take part in the goodness. In other words, just, just shift the focus from the problem and the failure. Admit the failure. Own up to the problem. Agree with God about the sin. But then recognize that God is good to you. And call others to take part and then worship the Lord. A sense of God's presence creates fear and consciousness of our wickedness. It makes things come back to our minds that we thought we had forgotten. So great can be the sense of our own sinfulness that our first reaction might be, I just don't think God can ever use me. But God is letting Peter know, I can still use you. In fact, I can use you better now than I could before. See, Peter's saying, go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Peter feels too sinful to be able to serve the Lord. And one might think Jesus would reply, yes, Peter, you are a sinful man. But he doesn't rebuke Peter because Peter's showing humility. What does the Bible say in James 4? God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. But let me give you a last thought here on this response to God's goodness in our life. Verse number 10. And so was also James and John, that is, they were in awe. And the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon, that's Peter, fear not. I mean, there's still, he's trembling perhaps. I, I just can't believe this. I can't believe that Jesus got into my boat and I almost turned him down and turned him away because I, I know what to do. I almost told God what I wanted and he would have let me have my own way. But I yielded and God took my failure and turned it into a colossal success greater than anything we've ever seen. And so Jesus says at the end of verse 10, fear not, from hence forth thou shalt catch men. Let me say third of all, see the big picture. See the big picture. What's the use in, in getting back up after we've fallen? Because there's a big picture. What's the purpose in, in, in working at getting right, getting clean, being transparent, confessing the Bible way? Because there's a big picture. What's the use in getting all in and being disciples of Jesus? Because there's a big picture. See, in the context, we find that Jesus calls Peter and the first disciples. And Jesus gently commands Peter, don't fear. It's all throughout the scripture. Don't fear, don't fear. And Jesus used this miracle, the miracle of catching fish, to illustrate to Peter the big picture of why you're here upon this earth. Because you're going to catch people. You're going to catch people. So what does Peter do? 
Jesus reassured Peter, telling him his sins did not disqualify him. Listen, your sins do not disqualify you. You covering your sin disqualifies you. Do you know that people cover their sin because they want to get rid of it? But God covers your sin and my sin far better than we can. And God's way of covering our sin is to obliterate them when we get humble and honest. And when we confess it out of humility, what happens is there's a humble response and Peter showed humility and God steps in and he unfolds and he opens the window of heaven for him to see the big picture. And that is, as a fisherman, you catch fish hoping to eat them. Not save them. But Jesus says, Peter, now you're going to be a new kind of fisherman. You're going to rescue people from the deep sea of their sin and bring them safely to the shore of salvation. Before Peter and his friends, they caught fish that would die. Now they're going to catch dead fish, sinners, so that they can truly live. It's a profound thought. Christian discipleship really involves Jesus Christ capturing someone for life. You see, when people have this idea that we can, all we need to do is just get saved. We get saved, we can live the Christian life our own way. We don't we try not to kill anybody. We don't do bad things. And we, you know, we're, we're not bad people. We, we, we're Christians, we're God's people. And we come to church as we feel like it when we want to. God knows. And, and like a man I was talking to this week, he said, uh, referred to God and he said, you know, we, I've got my own relationship with the Lord and the man upstairs understands my situation. I said, well, he's not the man upstairs. His name is God. And he does understand and he understands that you are rejecting God's plan for your life. And the truth is, we have this sense of, well, I, I think, I think I, I can do it this way. And some of us feel like, well, we do more than others. And, and we might have position and status and title. We might be doing more, but we still tend to think at times, I, I just, I'm just not going to have anybody else tell me. No one else is going to tell me what to do. I'm going to follow Jesus, but nobody else. The only problem with that is it doesn't fit with New Testament Christianity over the last 2,000 years and it doesn't gel with the Word of God which is the authority. You know, the church is not a place for you to do your thing. The church is a place to equip and disciple you, discipline, disciple, discipline you to follow Jesus. Not be a fan of Jesus. We got a lot of fans of Jesus. Amen, Jesus. That was a good hit. Amen, Jesus. That was a good play. Now, we don't need fans. We need followers. What does it require? A humble response. You might need to bow. You might need to recognize, I don't even know why he even lets me live. I don't deserve it. Or do you think you deserve it? It wouldn't be amazing grace if you deserved it. 
When was the last time you were just overcome with the goodness of God and you called others to see how good God is? The profound thought is that the Christian life really involves Jesus Christ capturing someone for life. I used to remind folks years ago, early, early when I got here, you know, we had a lot more people that would come on a Sunday morning than a Sunday night. And now the, we, by and large, the only ones who do not come on Sunday night, by and large, are just guests. That's the way it should be. Jesus didn't save you for just temporary status. He didn't ask for visitation rights. He saved you for life. Why is he not in your boat? Why is he not in your home? Why is he not in your vehicle? Why is he not leading your life? And the Bible says, verse 11, and we heard this on Sunday morning, and when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook what? All. And followed him. Simon didn't put up a temporary gone fishing sign. He took a permanent vacation for a new vocation. Stop and think about the decision Peter and his partners made. They had just hauled in the biggest catch of their career. And yet the most successful day of their life, they did not let that keep them from leaving all. I've, I've heard people say, well, you know, uh, I, I played football, or I played sports, you know, I wasn't that good at it, and so I didn't, you know, continue on into a college career or a pro career, but, boy, if I, were, if I were good enough, I wish I could be good like some of those pro, sport, pro players and, 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 and have that testimony and that platform to talk about how good God is and, and preach the, the goodness of God, I would give God glory. <coughs> really? I want to say that Hebrews 10.25 does say, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. <coughs> there are certain men who have been worshipped in the sports arena, they've been lifted up, I should say. Great Christians. They haven't been to church a day in their life. Well, because of their job. They're not married to their job. Or are they? Is that what saved them? Just because you can play professional football, does that mean that it's okay for you to miss church? It was easy when we're not really in that situation to kind of build that kind of an argument. But I'm simply saying, Peter walked away from the biggest, most successful day of his career Left it all. That's what he's been looking for. That's what he's been going after. A big catch such as this. But because Jesus said, follow me, 
It doesn't even say he prayed about it. They got to shore. They left all. They followed Jesus. Let me ask you, when was the last time you asked, Lord, what will thou have me to do? I don't think that that means that he will make everybody a, a church staff member or put everybody on a mission field. But shouldn't he have first claim to your life? You don't think so? The only right response to a God who is God is that he would have first claim to your life. Shouldn't he have say so? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Or is he not very hallowed to you? The very fact that people are still struggling with, the biggest thing they're struggling with is spending time with him. That's why we're not getting to thy kingdom come, thy will be done, because we're not even hallowing his name. We're treating God. Many are treating God like the people they don't like at church that they're stuck up and don't talk to. But I want to say whatever you think he did to you, it was good for you. He's God. And God used this fishing, job, hobby, recreation to get Peter to see there's a bigger picture. You may have caught 3,000 fish today, Peter, but one day it's going to be on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 living fish are going to be caught in the gospel net. And there's going to be more failure along the way. But Peter, if you will wait to my presence, for without me you can do nothing. If you'll cooperate with my plan, and if you'll respond properly, you'll find life worth living, and you will sail right through the seas of failure. And find that all things work together for good. Let's stand together, please.